Mm-hmm. Even though when we started writing the game, I had not read Around the World in 80 Days. No. And I, yeah, I, I hadn't actually read it until well, well into the middle of the project wow. at all. <laughs> That's an interesting choice. I just I, I knew what it was about, and I'd seen this cartoon. <laughs> it's on the kid. title. Yeah, right. Exactly. I didn't need to know anything else. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game developer John Ingold who co-founded Inkle. John is best known for his work in interactive fiction, including All Roads, 80 Days, and the Sorcery series. And I'm not even saying it's perfect, but it's funny how much difference that stuff makes. Like the fact that it's relatively pleasurable to use as well. It makes a nice ding noise when you press the buttons. I think these things are important. Right, right, right. Um, even though the eventual outcome of it is, yeah, pick one from 10. Well, I'll, I'll take part in a little foreshadowing here. We'll get to, we'll get back to the frustration part when we get to the inventory management in 80 days. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can discuss that then, but... Um, no, we've, we've argued about that before. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get to, uh, let's get to Sorcery 2. Um, yeah. So yes, let's talk, I mean, presumably... You, you know, you did. You know, you did source for one. So some of the stuff you did was a reaction to that game, right? Yeah, so what, what yeah. was your goal? What were your goals with Sorcery Two? Yeah, so Sorcery Two, there were two major drivers. The first one is the original book itself takes you into this wild, crazy city, and it really messes with the format. And Steve was doing this very deliberately at the time that he wrote it. That in general. They'd always written to maps because they were D&D designers and they believed in that kind of thing. But Sorcery 2 has no real map. It will, it's, it's built as an unfair maze. So the game book itself will have you turning from one page to another page. And the two are utterly impossible to geographically reconcile given the descriptions in the book. So I couldn't replicate the geography of, of the city. The second thing was that every negative review of Sorcery 1 had said, this game is too short. I finished it in 25 minutes. I think that's an exaggeration. Really? But, okay, right, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, is, maybe it's because if you just pick one path and you stick with it. Right. I think this was the thing, was that people... We, we saw that essentially as a positive in disguise, because what, what normally happens with a Choose Your Own Adventure app is that people press the buttons, they stop reading, and they go, oh, I can't be bothered anymore, and they yeah. put it down. And that's true of a lot of Choose Your Own Adventure apps that I've played. Yeah. They struggle to maintain momentum with the player. Sorcery was so good by all of the little tweaks that we'd done to it at maintaining momentum, that people would charge straight through and get <laughs> right. to the end and go, what? I don't know why I paid £5 yeah, yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, okay. on mobile, people are really brutal about um, <laughs> yeah, cost know. of value as well. I could have had a coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of this, this game, jeez. <laughs> and that coffee could have lasted me 25 minutes, maybe. <laughs> um, at a push. So we were determined to, to fix that problem. So, yeah, so the, so the first thing, I knew I had to chop and change the material to fill out the city anyway, because the book didn't make any sense. And anyway, it wasn't structured very well. There were more interesting events in this place and that place, and the, the, the tutorial flow of it was all wrong. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to take the content from the book scene by scene. I'm going to then ignore the book completely, and I'm just going to put it in the world however I see fit. Because okay. Steve had not cared about right. the edits that I made in Sorcery 1, Neither of the fans, so let's just make the best game we can. So you built the city sort of from scratch? Then? Yeah, exactly. And we okay. just arranged it the way we wanted to. Um, and that worked really, 
well. That worked really well. And it, and one of the nice things about it was it was actually really liberating um, in terms of uh, the adaption process. Because you know, here I am, and I, I still think as a writer <laughs> sometimes, and the original Sorcery 2 book is one that fans of the game books remember very well because it's full of little hints that there's various political things going on in this city that uh-huh. I never even vaguely touched on. Yeah. But they're just, you know, somewhere here that's mentioned there's a council of nobles, somewhere else it's mentioned that the nobles have all gone missing but they don't know why, yeah. somewhere here, this and that. And and I thought it would be fun to take those hints and build up a proper kind of revolution brewing in this city plotline. And, uh-huh. you know, that's that's there in the game. There's a... There are various competing forces looking to take over this city because I thought it would be interesting in a single setting to try and actually do a plot as well. And I think we sort of pulled that off. So the revolution is not in the, no. the books? Well, no, the revolution is okay. not in the books. I mean, how would a game book do that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and the it's, whole... I'm, I feel like I should go back and... or not. I mean, I never did it before. Like, read the books just to, like, understand how... Yeah. You know, like what you guys did. Because, I mean, it's... Yeah. Uh, it's interesting not to have the background at all yeah um, I, I think you'd find that they were they were quite straightforward yeah like steve is a very clever designer and he loves he loves tricks and traps right um and all of his game books you know the spellcasting system is an example of that but especially the later ones have got bizarre tricks in them mm-hmm. there's a lot of if you have the green amulet then add 17 to any paragraph that begins with the word <laughs> when to find the real paragraph because that way you can use a magic item in a game book by presenting a choice which is invisible to people except those who have the rules wow but in the case where you have that he will then they are just a complete tangent there's a a game book he wrote called creature of havoc in which you start as a monster who can't understand english Uh and all the humans that you meet are talking in gibberish except at some point you learn if you go the right way that the gibberish is actually a code which you can decode to understand what the humans are saying and if you understand what the humans are saying one of them will tell you where the exit from the maze is the exit from the maze is through a secret door in a wall Somewhere else you learn that to open secret doors in walls, you can only do it if the paragraph has three words in the first sentence or something bizarre Uh, like that. And then if you see that, you subtract seven and you can look for a secret door. But if you do that in all of the paragraphs that satisfy that condition, you won't ever find it and you won't be able to escape the intro of the game. The only way to win that game, and this is just the prologue, the only way to get out of the prologue of the game is to decode what the humans are saying, work out where in the map the secret door is, go there and subtract seven even though it doesn't match the rules that you were told to use for subtracting seven and then you open a secret door and get out into the rest of the game. It breaks its own rule because you're a monster who's coming to understand himself and achieving sentience by breaking out of the rule set you've been given to you. Like, that is art in a game book. It's absolutely brilliant. Wow. And I don't know how anyone solves this. Either you just try it because it ought to work or you de- reverse engineer it because it's only got 400 paragraphs and you need to read them. But it's genius. Wow. So that spirit is very that's, much there. That's in the, yeah, I was saying, the, uh, the Lone Wolf books are not like that at all. No, the Lone Wolf books, <laughs> like, generally speaking, it's, it's a US-UK thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Because of where the publishers put their money. But the, <laughs> when people tell me about how much they love the Lone Wolf books, it's very difficult to sort of get, yeah, but then really there's not that yeah, much. Yeah, it's just finally different. I mean, it's just, it's an adventure story that's got yeah. some cool stuff on it, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. So. Anyway, but um, wow, that sounds pretty, pretty heavy. But okay, so, but at the end of the day, like, you can only do so much in a book. Right. right. Yeah. So exactly. you're you're yeah. doing you know you're you're so you're you know reworking what sorcery two was. You yeah. Know, you're yeah. City. Absolutely. Um, but trying to stay true. So we we used to say that we were trying to tra- stay true to the spirit of right. the books, but not necessarily the text. So of the did books. it have the whole looping thing? No. Where, 
Okay. So in the original book, you have to collect four lines of a poem to open the gate at the far end of the citadel. And if you fail, or if you get the lines in the wrong order, um, each line has a number in it and you'd look up that paragraph. Okay. And all the permutations are handled in the book, which is another example of Steve doing his sort of thing. It will say, sorry, you're trapped here forever. That's the end of your adventure. Okay. And we were very conscious that we needed people to get through Sorcery 2 to buy Sorcery 3. Sure. <laughs> so very this important. was not okay. Yeah. Um, so the idea, I remember when we came up with the idea, we were we were discussing it and we, we didn't want to remove the whole spell line conceit completely because that felt like stepping too far away from the book, though actually I'm not sure that was the right decision. Um, but what we thought instead was we could probably manage to do a time loop mechanic where you went back in time in order to find the other ones. Uh-huh. And it tied into the theme of time travel, which is something that Steve does in book four. Yes. And he was a little bit wary about that. He said, that was the big twist in book four. You can't put that in book two. And I said, actually, I think on balance, it will be cool. Um, and, but from our point of view, we were just pretty excited when we realized that the engine was going to support time travel as a mechanic. Now, the way that that works is when you get to the end of the game and you decide you're going to rewind in time, it rewinds the whole story just like it does if you do a normal rewind. Yeah. It basically loads an earlier save only with a set of predefined variables are allowed to go, survive that, go with you, that right. trip. And then the rest of the story can look for those. And one of those variables is, are you on your second playthrough? Right. Are you on your third playthrough? Do you, attorney, remember, do you keep anything from your inventory? Or... I think originally you didn't keep it. And then we realized it was much more interesting if you did. I feel I, that's what I remember. Because I'm pretty sure yeah. if I had lost it, I would have had a very Absolutely. Thrown it across the room. <laughs> basically, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, that was yeah, we would not be talking today. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that was basically the experience we had, was that, like, oh, no, you have to keep it. And yeah. we said, well, doesn't that make it too powerful? And we said, oh what the hell? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's fun, it's fun. Um, and that led to like some lovely moments. Like there's a, there's a sword, there's a legendary sword you can buy uh, from a blacksmith and you can sell it. So if you buy the sword on your first playthrough, you can then go back in time and sell the sword and then buy it again. But the amount you sell it for is more than the amount you bought it for. Or something like that. Anyway, right. you can make a profit by, by, by time right. selling items. Which is just the sort of thing that's fun to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, what I really liked about the time looping aspect of the game is that it felt like it's... And you, know, you can't make every game about time looping, right? So yeah. it's not like this is like a permanent solution. But it seems like it was like one of the few times I saw an adventure game own up to the fact, own up to the way people actually play the games as opposed to the way, you know, maybe you'd like to think the player plays the game, which is yeah. like straight through, they make their choices, they live with them, right? Mm. Like that's not how people play these games, right? right? And of course you guys, you know, already owned up to that to some extent by letting people rewind yeah. with no penalty, right? So, yeah. you know, we, you know, you guys were like, okay, we know people do that. Um, and, you know, I always felt kind of conflicted about that. I'm like, okay, you guys are allowing me to well, rewind. The, the design but... of that was relatively subtle. Like, we don't allow you to rewind individual choices because yes. that's too arbitrary. Yes. We only let you rewind locations. And if you rewind more than one location, you are throwing away a path that you walk down. Right. And we figured that people probably wouldn't want to do that that much. Yeah. And they certainly wouldn't want to rewind more than three steps because then you get that, oh, I've just lost my inventory item yeah, yeah. feeling. So, so actually, yeah. I think the rewind was there more as a lure than something people would actually use that much, but I can't prove that, and everybody plays it differently. I used it fairly. Yeah, Joe, Joe used <laughs> well, to say because that, you know yeah. it's like you got you got you got the left path and you got the right path, and like you know it's like you want to know your options. This is the you... ultimate thing, okay. right? Like okay. it's hard to it's hard to like escape that. But that's the thing. Once I found out that the game had this time looping thing, mm. I was like, well, now I don't have to worry about rewinding. 
because this is this is just the game right mm. like i'm going to go through it a few times so i'm going to go down all the paths mm. right like the second time i go down i'm going to go left instead of right this mm. time mm. and it's built into the game mm. right like it's it's the the whole the like what would be something outside of the game normally, which mm. is like my ability to like mess with it. And in the game book, it's just your ability to like, well, I'm going to flip to whatever page I want to just yeah. because yeah, like yeah. I can. Yeah. Right. And so exactly. So the, the time loop came to us partly because we wanted a way for people to be able to win this experience. Yeah. So obviously we also had the ability to just ignore all the spell lines, destroy the city and just leave right. in a kind of rough fail state though. Surprisingly, people don't realize that's a perfectly good ending so much as I'd like them to, but also because we, yeah, we wanted the game to be longer. If I remember, I said that Sorcery 1, people had said, was too short. And actually, it's very large. It's just there's alternative paths, of course. Yeah. And so you, you lose that. So we wanted people to case the content very thoroughly yeah. to cover the content, but without feeling like they were being forced to cover the content. Yeah. And that, yes, exactly. The time loop let, you, let us do that. It let us may say, okay, this way you'll go back in time. You'll go down the left path. And that way, by the end of the story, you will have seen everything. Yeah. But it won't have been at the detriment of creating one journey through through the city it would be a more interesting way of doing that yeah yeah I'd actually, I, I'd actually forgotten that was one of our reasons but yeah. you're quite right that is one of our reasons. yeah i mean i thought it, it worked great because i didn't have to like you know you want to see all the content right and i'm not i didn't have to do it with some crazy snake path where i right. somehow touch everything yeah. nor did i have to like worry about like you know rewinding every possible way it's just mm. like I, I you know i could let go and just be like well i'm just gonna ex you know i'm just gonna experience the game as it as it goes because i know i'm gonna be seeing this mm. stuff you know mm. multiple times and i do think sorcery is played at its best when you stop worrying about covering it too much and just yeah. just like ramble forward and take what comes right because, yeah I, like, I i agree it's, it's just one of those things like that's it's that's hard to always, get people to hard do to that get, yeah, yeah it's hard yeah. to let go of that um and uh it's i think i think it was the right decision to allow rewind i think it would have been too frustrating without that mm. so this there have been seemed plenty like, of games which have been built without rewind in that kind of mode and they don't work yeah, at all right um, um so it seemed like a really great solution for that so, thank you yeah i love i Sorcery 2 is, in my opinion, the best adventure game I've played. Like, I really like Sorcery 2. Um, Sorcery 2 is my favourite of them in terms of the writing, because it was just such a joy to write that city. And, like, the 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 kind of motif throughout the whole... It, it's called Kare City Port of Traps, yeah. and absolutely everything in the entire city is out to get you all of the time. Sure. And if anything ever looks like it's good, it's always bad, and that's the joke. Sure. So <laughs> every situation you walk into, it says, well, you could go and look in this shop, but you don't have to. And the player goes, oh, all right, I'll go and have a look. Oh, look, oh, no. it's a trap. <laughs> like, I should have known. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. there's something wonderfully comedic about asking the player to be the instigator of their own demise yeah, yeah, yeah it's such a pleasure um and then of course there's a couple of things in the city which are there to help you and they all look like they're trapped <laughs> and so there are some fountains of dirty poisonous looking moss yeah. which will heal you if you drink from them yeah, yeah. and just that inversion is such a pleasure to play with yeah well there's a lot you can also do when you're just in, in just one setting right mm. and like normally with game type books you're on some sort of journey so you're going to be you're going to be crossing territory and mm. sailing and you know you're going to be meet, seeing new stuff because yeah that's the thing that's you know, if it was just in, if you're just in one city, you're going to choose through the content too quickly. Yeah. Right. So yeah. this again, this whole yeah. looping system allowed, you know, like one city to be interesting enough. for all Right. The and then you start to get all the nice things of this part of the city is having an argument with that part yeah. of the city. And how are these things connected? And um, and the storytelling that you can do between those elements. I don't know that we did very much storytelling, but little bits of connection, which are just such a pleasure when people find them. Sure. Yeah. No, yeah. it was lots of fun. 
Cool. All right. Well, let's jump to sorry, sorcery three then. No, you you actually eighty days comes in the middle. Yeah. Us, unless you want to. It seems like we're going to talk about eighty days, but it feels like we should keep okay. Going all right. Sorcery. All right. Otherwise, it okay. seems like thematically it'd be the right thing to do. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, after sorcery two, we wanted to um, do something different with the map. That was, I mm-hmm. think, where we started from. We we haven't really had any complaints about sorcery two. Most people really liked it. Yeah. Um, it didn't sell nearly as well as Sorcery 1 did because we didn't get any featuring from Apple on it. We never have. Yeah. Um, that's also just kind of the way things are with 1s and 2s. Yeah, I guess that's know. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah at, least, at least when it's like a story, right? Yeah. Unfortunately. But. Yeah. Um, but we, we kind of had this idea that, that there was probably something we could do with the map. So we talked about lots of different designs. Like, uh, I think we had ideas about like a landscape where you could you could move the actual geography of the landscape around with your fingers as if it was made of tiles that you could stir okay. but we couldn't understand what on earth that was narratively because it didn't make any sense who are you where are these fingers of power coming from the setting of three from the book was a wasteland where you're chasing seven serpents and right. the book doesn't make any sense because it's incredibly important that you kill these serpents but it doesn't let you backtrack at all Okay. Um, you're just powering forward. So if you miss one because you went left rather than right, then you get to the end and it's like, sorry, you missed one. What? You think, wow. well, that doesn't make any sense at all. As a character, you'd say, well, why? I'm not, no, I'm, gonna, I'm just <laughs> going to stand on the road to Manpang and wait for these serpents and attack yeah. them one by one. I remember saying this to Steve and he sort of looked a bit embarrassed and said, yeah, maybe that wasn't the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, the original book is, is also... The sorcery two mechanic of collecting four spell lines is what's known as a golden path game book, right? You have to hit all four beats yeah. to hit the ending. Seven serpents was a seven beat golden path game mm-hmm. book, which is, I think, stretching a bad idea slightly too far. Yeah. It was certainly my least favorite of the of the sorcery books, though right. there are elements of the setting that I liked. Um, so I guess we tossed around quite a lot of ideas, and but we we knew we wanted something that allowed you to draw on the map with your finger in a meaningful way. And I don't remember exactly where the final idea came from, but uh, whichever one of us it was that pitched to the other, Joe and I, that, yeah, you have towers of light and right. two layers of map and you turn the towers and you can change the time period on the map and then you can walk into it. Right. At which point we sort of looked at each other and realised we were making an open world game. Right. Which, uh, with a branching narrative tool which felt at the time like a completely insane thing to do. And right. for a long time when I started writing, I really wasn't sure it was going to be possible to make a map that you could freely backtrack right. across, because you really can't do that in a game book. Um, well, there was a game book called Fabled Lands that sort of did that, actually. And I guess in a way that that what did lay the, the groundwork for it. It's just the, the simple idea that you revisit paragraphs yeah. multiple times, but we use the text generation to make it look responsive, like you're not repeating yourself. Right. Okay, so how did you solve this problem? The, the same way that I've solved all programming problems ever, I hacked something and then when it didn't work, I hacked it a little bit more and eventually I had something which wasn't a system exactly, but it sort of worked. So, mm-hmm. um, And something I actually quite believe in quite strongly, I think, for interactive fiction authoring anyway, using patterns rather than systems. So most of the locations in Sorcery 3 have a particular structure where you'll go to, you'll go to a knot, which is a block of content, and... There'll be various ways into that knot depending on what path you're coming from, and those are separate addresses within that knot. They feed into a central hub, which is the basic actual content of that knot, and then the various exits will be a set of other addresses within the end of that knot. 
And what that lets you do is it means in the introduction point, you can say, okay, here you're going to put some text which will glue together where you've come from and where you're going in a way that pays attention to where you've come from. So if you've come down the mountainside, that's where we tell you that you're doing that. If you've crossed the river, this is where you tell you that we're doing that. Because we have to narrate every step of the journey for it to feel like a sorcery game. But both of those things then feed into the hub, which is you've arrived at this location. And then the hub itself would handle the... Is this your first visit here? Mm. Is it your second visit here? Did you cause a major state change here when you were there before? The sort of sorting logic. And you sort of buzz around inside that. And then one of the options would be, okay, leave. And when you leave, it would provide the options of how you leave. And then the exit points would, would tell tell it where to go next. Right. And that pattern, uh, it's fairly simple, actually. It took a while to think of it because it's nothing like the structure of a choose-your-own-adventure book, which sure. is how we've done it before. But it did arise from work that we'd done in Sorcery 2, because you could actually backtrack a bit in Sorcery 2, right. but it was all handcrafted. So having built it in a handcrafted way, I wanted a way that was a little bit more regular. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have the functionality to make anything that anything... Any, like We didn't have the functionality in Ink, and we still don't, to represent the map as a data structure in Ink, because that's not how Ink works. Mm-hmm. You can't make an internal map. So if I wanted to make a map, I needed a file in which it said... If you're here, go there. If you're here, go there. It's all go-tos, basically. Yeah. But So use the pattern to make sure that your go-tos are in the right place. And then layering the second mechanic of Sorcery 3 was the ability to change the time period, which we did by... There's just a Boolean, which says, yeah. what time period are you in? And the, the main game injects that. But that was okay at that point. So I had a pattern that would just say, well, okay, here you are in this hub. Not, are you in the present day or the past? Yeah. If you're in the past, go over there. Yeah. And when you're done, come back. Because they shared the same map structure, right. the pattern handled the map structure. So it sort of, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't using the engine in the way that we'd intended it to be sure. used. It was making a lot more use of, of structure and, and diversions than I'd ever really given credit to. So you found like basically a feature that you yeah. know was in your Exactly, was exactly. In your, was in your engine. Um, and I think we, I think that was the one where we invented the tunnel structure as well. So the tunnel structure in Ink is the ability to to call a knot as a subroutine, basically. And then you play through it and you play through all of its choices. And then at the end, it says, right, oh, pop the stack. Back to where you were. Wherever it was you were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we needed that so that you could, to do things like the ability to sleep in any location. Okay. So the sleeping content is a separate sub-story that gets so you, triggered and then returns. So you stay to on the map and then it'd be yeah, right. Exactly. And that that was something we had to hack into the compiler. Very, very ugly. There was like a lookup table that it generated and it as a static flow. Yeah. Yeah, that was horrendous. But it it was necessary. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it was quite fun though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, was an interesting game. I mean, I I thought the mechanic of essentially, you know, two maps was really interesting to play with. Um, And uh, it was nice to be able to work through the, you know, it was like, the first eighty percent was great, mm. but like I think the challenge with an open world is, you know, like a lot of these games have kind of like your, your I don't know what's the right metaphor. I want to feel like you're sweeping the floor, right? Mm. Like you're picking up all the pieces, mm. right? And like they're tidying up, tidying up, you know, like and you know everything's going into the dustbin. Um, but when you have an open world that you're just kind of wandering around, and there's two different layers, mm-hmm. like I, I just I just miss something, right? Like one yeah. of the one of the serpents was in the like a crystal ball in a, in yeah. a hut somewhere yeah. that somehow I just, you know, I just yeah. missed. Right. Yeah. And then like, once I got to that point, it was kind of like, 
I don't know what to do now. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's difficult because I think um, as a designer, one thing I thoroughly enjoy is annoying min-maxers and uh-huh. annoying completionists. Right. Um, and I've always enjoyed this and I still enjoy this. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate they're a hefty chunk of the game playing <laughs> audience. But um, it's just extremely satisfying to take people who are really motivated, not by enjoying the experience of your game, but by dissecting it and taking all of its part, bits yeah. apart and then making that process arbitrarily difficult for those people yeah. and push back against their desire to not pay attention to the thing that you wanted them to pay attention to in the first place. So one of the things I really liked about the, the multiple layer map mechanic was that you could theoretically visit every location in the present and the past but in order to do that you would have to do a ludicrous trip of constantly resetting the towers and moving them around sure. in order to cover every bit of the map well, and that was deliberately done to annoy people who would want to see all the content sure. but of course the people who want to see all the content put the hours in anyway <laughs> yeah well i should i should clarify i wasn't i wasn't necessarily concerned about trying to see all the content okay all right like i i think that going through two put me in a, in a position where i was like you know kind of in a position of, of trust trust that like okay mm. you guys you guys are leading me on a, a you're, you're leading me on this journey you're giving me the right options you're thinking very hard about like how to construct the, this game in a way that it will work because i think with a lot of these games until you get th- get kind of through it, it's hard to know whether you should trust the designer or yeah, not. Yeah, that's right? definitely like, true. You don't yeah. know, like, or these people really know what they're well, doing. That's, that's the problem with choose your own adventure type mechanics is that they're arbitrary, right? Yeah. And that, that basically means can you trust it or can't you? That's exactly right. what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I was I was on board and I really, I mean, I really liked the game. Like, all the parts of it I enjoyed. Um, it was just that once you got yeah. You know, the, they're in, I mean, I guess some of the serpents move, but like they're basically your specific places you need yeah. to go to. No, and that... if you miss one, right, like it's just. Yeah, kind of like... and I, I think that one is a particularly bad one because I think if you miss it, you can't go back and get it. Like a lot of the others you are know sitting which there. You know what I'm talking about? I, yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. it's the sun serpent in the orb. Yeah. Um, I, again, I feel like it's, it, that's just a different kind of completionism though. Like we saw that in Sorcery 2 as well, right? At the end of Sorcery 2, you can find the four spell lines and stop the city from being invaded by goblins. Right. Or you can just not bother saving the city from being invaded by goblins. And a lot of people found that they just couldn't do that. And we got to the end of this, uh, and that they would rather not finish book two uh-huh. than destroy the city and move on. Yeah, it's, that's a hard thing to... And that's it's a hard thing to ask a player to do, but yeah, like yeah. we've set up the worst city in the world where everyone <laughs> in it is out to get you. Absolutely everyone. And it's really hard to save. And you've been asked to do it by someone completely unreasonable. Uh-huh. So the catharsis of saying, nope, <laughs> see ya. Like, to me, that felt like the correct ending for Sorcery 2. And there's a lot... I get. I, I suppose you saved Kare. Right. So if you don't save Kare, the ghost of the wizard Lorag becomes your spirit animal. Okay. And he sits there arguing and heckling with you for the rest of the adventure. Mm. So every time you use any of the spells that involve summoning the calm voice to tell you about danger, what you get is Lorag taking the mick out of you. Uh-huh. And like, there's a huge amount of content there, and I think some of it's quite funny. And eventually, you can convince him that you're a good person and he'll help you. Right. But you know, like, there's a whole arc to that. Sure. To that extended failure sequence, because I don't think that is a failure. But yeah. but anyway, um, for the serpents, yeah, I, I uh, think the, the feeling I had was that if you only get six of them, that's got to feel fine. I mean, it, I felt the thing is that's right. I felt fine. I was like, I've done a good job. I'm ready to move on. I just mm. forget like, could I have? I could I right, finish right, it? Right. Well, I, yeah. I literally don't know what. I don't remember like. 
Oh, so are you literally asking me, is it possible to get all seven? No, no, no. I got seven because eventually what I did is I just went online. Right. Right. And this was like the only time I actually have to look look it up, which was great. This is why I enjoyed the series is that generally speaking, I didn't feel like I needed to to look this stuff up. So if you only have six, is there an ending you can get? Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, if you want to, if you remember, there's a time mechanic in Sorcery 3. It counts how many days you take to do it Uh um, because this was built after 80 days. And, um, that's a perfectly valid strategy is just to cross the map as fast as you as fast as possible and capture none of the serpents. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, you can get into part four with any combination of journey length and any number of serpents. Okay. And uh, there are various other things. I think you can you can kill the sun serpent or you can carry it with you in its glass orb and then it can be used in sorcery four. So it's it's very much it's very much intended, I guess, that players who like players basically like me, who tend to just advance through the content, reach the end and be done with it. And that's very much how I play these things. Um, can just play it whichever way they happen to play it and get to the end and go, okay, that's my ending. Yeah. And I'll progress with that. Because there's what we hoped, I suppose, was that players by that point would have enough trust that they'd know that we wouldn't block them at all. Yeah. At any point. Um, and then it's really up to you whether you want to go back and get those yeah. extra serpents. I think the, the fact that the sun serpent wasn't possible to collect if you missed it because there were the fast travel systems, so you could even sort of teleport to roughly the right location and go and get it mm-hmm. if you knew where it was. But I have a feeling that one, if you missed the opportunity, then the opportunity window closed, and that was possibly a slightly harder condition that we should have made it. Right. But, um, yeah. Huh. So it's interesting. I mean, like, that's... I feel like there's a really interesting design question here of, like, how you, how you make sure the player knows... How you make sure you get the player to trust you enough mm. to do that? Because if mm. I knew that, like, mm. I could carry forward and have, you know, an ending that was like fine, or if fine isn't the right word, that like it's it's um, a total path that I can continue on through the rest of the books mm. and everything will be fine with mm. six serpents. Yeah, I probably would have just done it right because mm. I would have rather done that yeah. than like. But how do you tell stuck. the how do you tell yeah. the player that that's okay? Yeah. Right? It's um, because. It seems like you're put. You're giving yourself a bit of a, like a Sisyphean. Uh, I can't have a hard time with that word. Sisyphean. Anyway, yeah, yeah, the Greek guy with the rock. Yeah. Yes, uh, in that like with with video games, you say like there's seven serpents to kill. At least half of your players are going to be like, okay, there are then, seven serpents to kill. No, that's absolutely right? true. But that's like, a whole part of the sorcery mandate. Like a huge part of what makes sorcery sorcery is that. Whenever it says there are seven serpents to skill, then the interpretation that I would always expect that player of that game to have is, I wonder if I can get away with this. Right. Because so, it's so much about that. Sure. So like, I, I'm sure there are players like that. But like, yeah. to some extent, so this is why um, in XCOM, uh, at least in the, the, the reboot you know, that, that Fraxis did, um, they give you, in your, you have this training mission you go through. And you start with, I forget, three or four characters, but they kill two of them in that first training mission mm. because they want to tell you way up front, like, that is what this game is. Mm. You're mm. going to lose characters, mm. right? Like, mm. they want to make sure that they, they like, tell... Because video games, people just bring lots of assumptions into video games, mm. yeah. right? And, well, like, one of those assumptions is, like, you can't you can't lose a guy, right? Like, mm. that's, that's their version of the min-maxer problem, right? Mm. And... I don't. I totally do not know what the answer is, but I guess what I would what I would say is like you need to figure out a way to like communicate to the player that like this game is about writing your story, not necessarily about like you yeah. know figuring out like 
And not necessarily like checking the boxes that you would in a typical yeah, adventure game. I mean, like, we are talking about a game in which, in most scenarios, mm-hmm. when you, you know, you see an elderly, you see an elderly witch in her hut, and she's inviting you in, and she might or might not be about to eat you, and you have no idea. <laughs> right. And there are three options, and one of them is to run her through with your sword. Right. One of them is to go in and say hello, and the other one is to cast a fireball spell and destroy her entire house. Right. And whichever one of those you click, the game will do, and then move on. Like, and that's just a minor beat encounter in sorcery. Sure. This is a this is a game when you first go into the very first village. There are five spells when a peasant jumps in front of your path, and one of them is Zap, the lightning bolt spell. And people go, wait, I'm allowed, I, this guy hasn't done anything. Why would I zap him? And then they zap him, and he gets zapped, and they go, I feel really bad about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is a game which is all about yeah. saying, look, if you press that button, it's your button. Yeah, yeah. Do what you like. Um, that I, fe- I feel like I can't even imagine... I, and look, you're, I'm sure you're right. You are right. The player is always right. Like, that is definitely true. <laughs> but I cannot imagine what you might have expected the game to say when you reach that final map location with only six serpents. What I, did you think I we were going to put on screen? No, like, you. sorry, Minute. you didn't get the seventh one. Back you go. I yeah, mean, that's what I expected. I, I can't, I can't because, because, see that in the sorcery language. so many other video games work like that. Yeah, but like you've played several hours of sorcery by yeah. now. It's never done I mean, that. Maybe this isn't that big of a deal because I think the thing that... I mean, like most... So f- again, for most of the game, it was all totally fine, right? Because mm. like I knew that like whatever I choose, like just uh, different stuff happens. And like I'm no longer worrying much about like, you know, am I going to choose some path that's going to ruin my game for me? I'm not going to be... Not, there's no Walking Dead problem here. Like I feel yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm really trusting what you guys are doing. But but I guess maybe this is just the special case of like the game's ending, right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. like yeah, I did anticipate that like... You know, this is an adventure. There is there is some sort of goal, and mm. if I don't meet that goal, right? Mm. Like the door is still locked, right? Like the door has seven keys, and I have six keys, right? Like yeah. that's 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 my mental model yeah. for the game. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, the the story that you're relating is basically you came to this game with an assumption formed by other games. Yeah. We tried our absolute damnedest yeah. to break that assumption down for you in every level of the game, from micro to macro. I really do think we did, and yeah. we didn't manage it. And fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I mean, maybe we should have put a tutorial line up front that says, you don't have to kill all seven serpents. We could have put that in red text at the bottom of the first paragraph, and it would have made your game better. And in that case, I'm sorry that we didn't, because I wouldn't have minded doing that. But like, yeah, I I, I do, I would say that if you look back at the thematic design of the entire series, yeah, yeah. that assumption that we were going to stop you, the game never stops you. No, no, Sometimes I, it kills you, but it yeah. never stops no, I, you. I, I, I agree with you. I, I I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> I just think that we're, sure. as video game designers, we have certain, like, there's just certain things that we're stuck with, mm. right? And to some extent, we can accept that or, you know, it, de- yeah, de- it, it, it depends on the situation. But, like, course, my but whole... Do I have a career in video? I suppose I do. My whole career in video games has been about finding people's assumptions and poking them. Right. Like every time I was breaking the parser interactive fiction model, I was poking at people's assumptions. Every time I was making a gimmick game where like things weren't in chronological order that they were supposed to be, it's poking. And like sorcery is definitely one of the reasons I found it so gleeful to write 
Whereas choose your own adventures are arbitrary and unfair. And here is a game which says up front, I am arbitrary and unfair. And every encounter that you get into is going to be arbitrary and unfair. And that's how it works. Right. And people get the idea, I think, in Sorcery 2, that um, either they just feel despondent because this game is constantly out to get them, or they realise that they're an active participant in what is essentially a comedy in which they get to go, yeah, let's do the stupid, dangerous thing and see how it's going to get me. And the joy of that, that it's no longer about protecting or maintaining your inventory. It's much more about seeing what what scrape are you going to get into next time. That, to me, is the whole heart and soul of the game. And, like, yeah. Yeah, and and for the record, like... And and if that works 99.9% of the time, then actually I'm pretty bloody proud of that because you're right, that goes against the model of every adventure game ever. Right. and the idea that you can get the player to be an active, willing, gleeful participant in their own demise yep. sounds great to me. And if we didn't manage that in this one case, then I'm sorry that it broke your flow. I really am. I, well, but um, I mean, for the record, yeah. you like you know that like what what you're describing is what I thought was special about sorcery, and like you right. know, I mean, I, I enjoyed so the it game. did it did get across. It was just that one it's thing. It's interesting. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think ultimately a lot of it comes down to like sorcery three is a, like a hugely ambitious game. Like, I mm. think it's clearly, like, the most ambitious of the four. I think it's me. the most ambitious game we've made yeah. uh, until Heaven's Vault. And yeah. so I think that, you know, it's... Th- th- this can happen, right? You make really ambitious games, and it just makes it... It's a little bit harder to maybe completely stick everything. Yeah. But, th- I, but that's, you know... You're, that's, you're never going to convince like... me that you're right on this one. I hear <laughs> you. I understand you. I apologize, but I... I, well, I'm, I I'm stand not necessarily by arguing. I'm just, I'm just like <laughs> sharing my experience. No, basically. no, and your experience is valid. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 fine that you know. The thing, one of the things is that we have heard like the entire spectrum of this complaint about all of the sorcery games, basically, from the people who said, you know, I couldn't. I got to the end of Sorcery 4, I hadn't found the spell lines, I didn't want to have to do a time loop to play the content again because that felt like a waste of my time, so I quit. Mm. To the people who say, oh, I was walking through the, the fields in Sorcery 3, this boy appeared, he stole something from my backpack, he stole my blackface mask, I quit the game. Yeah. I'm not losing my blackface mask. And I said, well, why didn't you just rewind? And they said, well, I tried it a couple of times, but he kept steal- turning up and stealing my blackface mask. Okay, you can't... Af- and, you know, if you're a player who who can't deal with losing one arbitrary item yeah. and joe would say to me you know come on look, look <laughs> this guy's really pleased that he's got his blackface he wants a chance to use it it's just like it's needlessly negative and i'd be like no it's gleefully negative and was that a good element of design i think on balance it probably wasn't and it definitely lost us at least one player this right. little boy stealing a blackface mask but it's just a minor example of the same problem that you're sure. describing and i don't know where the line was but i do feel that 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 every time you make the game a little bit fairer sure then you're drawing its teeth and and that walking that line of being just frustrating enough is to me more, more interesting than solving user testing problems sure um and I'm, it's okay to get that wrong sometimes, I yeah. think. But you're right. It would have been useful if the player had realized up front that the Seven Serpents was a, what do they call it? Um, not so much a target as a, a sort of recommendation. Yeah. It was <laughs> like know. a, yeah, it was a challenge as opposed to... Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. A school, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. So Sorcery 3 finish. Sorcery four. So yeah. What were you? What did you want to do with that? That was, that was different. So by sorcery four, we were getting quite tired. Okay. We'd written a lot of sorcery <laughs> by this point. Sorcery three is an enormous game with a huge amount of content, yeah. and I was feeling a little bit like I'd used up every encounter I could think yeah. of. Um, 
But what we wanted to do with it was we wanted to, we had a bunch of ambitions, I suppose. We wanted to curtail the series dramatically. We wanted to make a game that was hard because all the other games do try to propel you forward, serpents yeah. aside. Um, Sorcery 4 was the first game that I that we decided we didn't care if anybody finished it or not because there wasn't a Sorcery 5. Purely financially, it didn't matter. So it was okay to put a proper puzzle in it. Right. So um, we wanted to have a proper puzzle, a proper point that people could get genuinely stuck and not be able to figure out so that the people who did figure it out would feel, feel clever about what they'd done. Um, and we wanted the game to feel like a kind of best hits of the previous one. So the structure of the map is there's a there's a period in the mountains which calls back to Sorcery 1. Yeah. There's, there's a town area which calls back to Sorcery 2. Okay, yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, we didn't really follow that through exactly. There are, we, we were going to do a bit more with the time towers from Sorcery 3, but actually mm -hmm. architecting that had been so annoying and difficult to get right that actually I, I just couldn't face doing it again for Sorcery 4, so we cut that down. Um, and then the other thing we wanted to do was... Uh, yeah, to replay the time loop mechanic uh -huh. and to do something else with the time loop mechanic and finally to take away Rewind. Yeah. Like we had always known from the beginning that we were going to take away Rewind in Sorcery yeah. 4. So that, that was a big one, obviously. Yeah. Like that was a huge choice. Yeah. And I think that worked very well. Thank like, you. I've you know. definitely heard the alternative <laughs> point of view. <laughs> because um, it's just like, you know, it's kind of like when a, when a, a, a book series or a TV series, they, they do something... That would I don't know I don't know the way to describe it. It's just like they earned it, yeah. Right, right. like they put exactly. in the time to do this thing that maybe normally wouldn't be a good idea, yeah. But like they earned it, right? Yeah. And like I, we'd been on this long journey. You've given me this very generous rewind. Mm. I know I'm near the end, and you're gonna do of this. Of course, to me. I'm gonna raise the stakes right. on you, and it's the only way I've got to raise the stakes on yeah. you is to take away the rewind. And of course, you know we replaced it with a different kind of rewind, right? Um, and it's really just a different length of rewind more or less um but with it that it was like a save remind me how it works uh, exactly. so the the trick is you learn the z spell which means that when you die you can cause yourself to be reset yes, to the point where right. you cast the z spell but you lose one point of stamina when you do it one right. point of maximum stamina permanently so you don't want to do it too much but it's effectively a rewind was the Z spell like the weird spell that was like in the, from the first, like was all the way back in the first one that was referenced? Uh, it's, I think it might be referenced in the first one. It's definitely the spell that Lorag uses in on you in Kare okay. to do the time loop. Okay. So we had seeded that spell okay. all right. Um, all right. in right. the law. Right. Right. <laughs> Such as the law is, it's not yeah, very, yeah, yeah. not very, not very important. Okay. Um, yeah, and then otherwise, I think the oh yeah, and the other thing we we wanted to do was. In the original game book, um, you, you play through and then you get to the end and you cast this Z spell, which has been in your spell book for the whole time, but nobody knows what it does. Yes. And there's nothing else you can do apart from cast this spell. And then you roll the dice and it sent you back to a paragraph of one of the previous sorcery books. So oh, I remember right. this from when I was a kid. It was like, go back to page 83 of book three. And we didn't have book three. So I would go back to page eight. I think we, we didn't have anything. Actually, we only had book four. So when I read this, but I couldn't do it. So in my mind, oh, you mean you as act, a kid, when you were a kid, yeah, when I was a kid, sorry, okay. when I was a kid, I built up this idea that what happens when you cast the Z spell is you go into book three, you do some stuff that's in book three, and then you come back into book four again. Uh -huh. And I was like, whoa, that's incredible. He's <laughs> right. using actual time travel inside a game book. And it turns out that's not true. What happens when you go back to paragraph 83 of book three is it just picks up the adventure from somewhere and you just have to do it again. And you have to finish book three? It, um, no, because obviously nobody does that, because why would you do that? But in principle, if you were playing properly, if you were not cheating, right. you would just be back one book ago 
and you just have to do the whole adventure. Right. Again. So that's what I mean. That's what you're supposed yeah, to do. That's theory. what you're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and it isn't even properly worked out because you might have an item in book four, sure. which book three doesn't account for properly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's really, it's a gag, not a piece of design. Right. Okay. And, but in my head as a kid, it had been this piece of design because I'd yeah. never actually tested it. Mm-hmm. So when I came and finally discovered that this was, that it was a massive letdown, but I'd already told everybody that this was something we were going to do. So it's something we were going to do. So um, we wanted, we definitely wanted to include this idea that you could go back in time to content from the previous maps and the previous games and then explore little hidden corners of of the older maps of the sorcery. So of the sorcery series. So in book two, there was an area of the map called the Gardens of Briar, which we deliberately marked onto the map, but not put any content in because we wanted to leave it as this thing that people go, well, what, what is this place that I can't get to? Right. Um, and then go back into it from book four. So we, we knew we wanted to do that. We just didn't know quite how it was going to be. So we had the we had these things floating around. We wanted to take a rewind and we wanted time travel and we wanted to drop back into the content of previous books and make all of that make sense. Oh, and the counterspell mechanic that we'd introduced in book three which didn't exist in the game books but i'd felt like we needed to upgrade magic somehow yes right so that there was something else you could do with magic spells so we, right. we we seeded that and then built that out into sorcery four so that there was another kind of puzzle to solve right but we had lots of ideas about how it was going to work and we were wondering about sort of like that idea from time loop films where you something terrible happens and then your future self comes back and saves you mm. and then you would do that and then you'd get to the end of the book and have to go back and save yourself right. the way that you did but then we realized that would be really boring because then by the end of the book, you just have this thing you just had to do, which mm-hmm. you, you you'd already done. Theory, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it took a couple of iterations, uh, uh, sort of design iterations to settle on the exact way that it worked, mm-hmm. which even now, looking back on it, I find quite hard to describe exactly how all the rewind states and spells of Sorcery 4 work because they got a bit fiddly. But yeah, I think that's basically it. You, right. you had this ability to, to come back from death Oh, that was it. And so then if you wanted to rewind, there were various opportunities in the story where you could you could basically do yourself in in order to die, in order to rewind, mm-hmm. um, which felt like a sorcery-ish sort of thing to ask the player to do. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And then the other mechanic I felt strongly about was disguises. Like, oh, right. You could, yeah, you could put on a different... Uh, I just thought that would be really fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was cool. And it was funny because I often forgot I was <laughs> yeah, disguised right. and I had it on for so long. And then I was yeah. like, wow, I really wonder... Would have happened if I'd had you know a different disguise on. Yeah, I think exactly. I think for most players, it was not that big a deal. Like from a writing point of view, it was really quite hard actually. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I was like, you probably had to do a whole bunch of different permutations for all yeah, the different yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. outfits. Um, but it just it it seemed like a fun idea at the time. That one, it wasn't too serious. The thing that sticks out in mind is those things on the side, the corners. Yeah, that area just seems so strange. Right, I don't. And the geography of it seemed strange too, and like I guess it almost felt like almost like a classic, like adventure game puzzle mm. or adventure game mm. maze type area, mm. right? Um, and uh, yeah, I found those areas challenging. The College of Magic. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I'd be absolutely upfront about that. The at this point, I was quite tired of writing sorcery, okay. and I, I did a I did a writing I taught a writing course and uh-huh. met a guy there who hadn't worked in the industry but had made some twine games called graham robertson mm-hmm. and i thought i reckon this guy can write sorcery content mm-hmm. so he did a little bit of content for sorcery 3 and then he did a lot more content for sorcery 4 and he covered about half of the game i did a lot of editing to get it to fit the style and yeah. the flow but a lot of the original content in that went into sorcery 4 was graham 
not okay. me for the fact for the first time he wrote about probably about 30 percent of the game in the end um and a lot of the college of magic was from him and i think if i'd have tackled the college of magic myself i don't think i quite would have pitched it in the way that he did uh-huh. like he was quite interested in in weird stuff like a lot of the really weird i think there's like a two-headed creature arguing with itself and that's yeah. that's very graham yeah. like that's a little bit weirder than i would have gone there's a dream where you become a scrap of mold that's very graham yeah and then a few other of the of the examples. And he was definitely writing to the brief we gave him. He did an excellent job. But, you know, everyone brings their own thing to sure. the table, especially in a game with huh. a huge amount of content. That's in interesting because it. it definitely, I could, I had this sense, like, this feels like it's just a different tone. Yeah, like, I, think that, I think that's true. We never quite got the tone to match on that. And I, to be honest, by that point, I'm not even sure what I would have done with that right. area. Like, I'd, I'd sort of sketched out this idea that there would be a college of magic. And I knew how I wanted it to feel, but I didn't actually know what the player did in it. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why I said, Graham, this is how it feels. I don't do your best. necessarily remember. Was I getting items from that or things from that that were So important? mostly what you were doing was learning the counter spells. Yes. So each tower right. had yeah. the, the embodiment of the spell and an ability to beat it. Right. And what the player was trying to do was accumulate the knowledge of the counter spells, which was how you... So it had a somewhat door. abstract goal. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Right. Um, which, which also changes things because a lot of the stuff in the game, generally speaking, had not been abstract like that. Yeah. It had been very yeah. tangible. You know, but this is, goes back to what I said about how... We wanted this game to be hard, yeah. or we were happy for this game to be hard. So, we, it was. The, I think it's the only combination lock in the whole series which you actually have to be able to do yeah. in order to complete the game is to open the sort of the big gate at the bottom, and it's a series of spells and a series of counter spells, and you have yeah. to learn the right counter spell for the spells, and you do that by exploring the college. And yeah, um, I think actually the the major issue I would have that with the colleges mm. was actually the navigation, okay, not the actual content of the towers. Mm. I mean, the content of the towers was weird. But, you know, it's, it's a weird game, right? Yeah, it's not and that it's strange. It's the weirdest place of a weird game yeah. as well. But the thing is, like, you could end up in a situation where, like, okay, I don't know this, the, I don't know what to do with this tower, but to get back, I have to kind of follow this weird path where I have to go through all the other towers yeah. to get yeah. there. And some of these towers, I really do not want to go through again because yeah. there are yeah. bad things in them, right? Yeah. And, like, if, if, you know, like, it's abstract. So yeah. it seems like at that point, like, make it easier for the player to be yeah. like, okay, here yeah. are the... Here are the ten towers mm. you're going to face. You know, just go ahead mm. and. I mean, the, the number yeah. of towers was limited. Was was prescribed by the fact that they had to represent the, the entire collection of spells and right. like the symmetry and the layout of the tower maps. I don't know if you noticed, but the two things are symmetric, and the counter spell towers are in opposing sides of the map. Okay. So if you can work out what this tower is and what this tower is, uh, you know that they're counter spells of each other. Okay. So we wanted to use that kind of high level geography as a clue, essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. which some people can spot and some people not. Doesn't yeah, yeah. really matter. Um, but yeah, it definitely did have that problem of of once you'd driven down the paths through these things, then you were stuck in a point where you couldn't get back from. What I expected people to do was be just to sort of run into the Tower of Goblins, get eaten, and then resurrect themselves, <laughs> because you always had that option. But yeah. I appreciate that that might not be what people wanted. Yeah. yeah, I was never really quite happy with the layout of the college. I was never really happy with the layout of the Citadel geographically. It felt... It was quite difficult to pack everything in, and everything felt a little bit too, a little bit too pat and a little bit too simple. I, it didn't quite work out for me, and I think, but because it was the one that we built a real, well, a real three D model. We built a three D model yeah. for and roofs and walls and things. Right. We had to do. We had to commit to the map a little bit earlier yeah. to get all the code in for being able to go inside rooms, and so we had a little bit less ability to iterate on that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think thematically this would all work very well, right? Like it just, just yeah, it was a lovely setting, and yeah. like in terms of the in terms of the te- sort of technical engineering, the fun of writing a city where all of your actions have a repercussion in quite a very constrained space mm-hmm. was really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know. I feel funny about Switch before, and I don't know whether it's just because it's the only one that I didn't sort of write entirely myself or whether I was just tired by that point. But it's definitely not one of my favourites, even though there's a lot of things that I ought to be proud of in it, I think. Like, perhaps it's just the ending of series. Yeah, yeah, well, let's talk about the actual ending itself. Right. Um, Now, I actually don't really have an opinion on the ending because, you know, it it was a game that had committed so much to you being able to pick all sorts of different crazy paths. Mm. And I just kind of knew, you know, like, almost as a game developer, like, I'm getting the ending, you probably have very little idea of, like, what my current state is. Yeah. And so, I, I guess for just some reason, I didn't really worry about it. I was just like, well, let's see what happens. Mm. And like, okay, that mm. happened. And, that, you know, that's mm. that's fine. But anyway, what did what did you want to do with the ending? Like, what was your So, I think there were, there were two things with the ending that were important to me. And the first thing was the the time loop puzzle inside the tower. So that was the one thing that I had from the start, which was similar to something in the original book, but not quite the same. But I liked the idea that, um, I can't remember exactly how it worked, that you had to, you had to meet the Archmage and get captured by the Archmage in order to get a key that would allow you on the second playthrough Mm -hmm. of this particular loop. So we were doing a tight time loop on the epilogue with a couple of playthroughs so that we could definitely have a, a moment where you met the big bad guy and you failed before you came back and you met the big bad guy and you won because that way you'd get to the ending you think this is the ending and then you would lose right and that is a sorcery moment and i was quite passionate about that and i liked the fact that we had the time loop mechanic in place that we could do that um and then then you go up and you meet the archmage properly and you win and everything from the point where you realize that this on this loop you're going to be able to beat him Uh because you've got the little magic creature with you I didn't really, I wasn't really bothered about that. That was just finishing off. Like, you know, yeah, you go meet him. He has some conversation with you. You can stab him or not stab him or take the crown. I didn't really care whether players wanted to end up the ruler of Archmage or go back to Annaland. That stuff doesn't matter. There are like three different endings, but who cares about endings? Um, They had to be there because Mm -hmm. people might want to press them. Yeah. But by that point, I didn't. I didn't really invest in any of those particularly. Like my favorite ending is the slightly longer one because Uh it's got a few more words in it, whatever. Um, For me, the important bit, the real, the the important heart of it is the moment where you meet the Archmage and the Archmage convinces you that you don't know what you, that you've been been sent on a mission. Misled the whole time. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And that was lovely. That was really, really lovely and a real pleasure um, to write because uh of one thing which is the point where the archmage says look i'm going to prove to you that you don't know why you're doing what you're doing tell me your name and you don't know your name because we've never given you a name the whole Mm -hmm. way through and it's so cool to be able to not give you a name and then say but you don't even know your name and the player goes hopefully right i always just accepted that and now now that's a problem um and then to turn around and say no, no, he's just fucking with you. <laughs> it was was really fun, and I, I was really happy with that as an ending. And I felt like once we once we got through that, I didn't really mind about the rest of it. Then then the, the game can just finish because I've done the best thing I've got. <laughs> That's right, all right, I've right. got. Um, and apart from that, the only other thing that I was really that I really cared about actually was the relationship with Flanker, mm. the ninja. Yes. Now I, I don't know what your path on that was. Um, I think I had a fight. I, I generally had a good relationship with him, but then I think I had to kill him at the end. Right, exactly. So, yeah. like, thematically, tough. yeah, yeah. And Fl- Flanker is a Flanker is a ninja, right? And mm. I don't know much about ninja culture beyond what most people have managed to pick up about ninja culture. But um, 
if a ninja is coming to kill you, but you spare his life, then he is beholden to you. Right. But he is already dead because you spared his life and you didn't need to do that. So thematically, from the moment that you spare Flanker's life in book one, he is dead, but he just hasn't died yet. So he has to be killed at the end and he has to be killed by you. Nothing else can possibly work. He has to come back and fight you. There is a plot mechanical reason for it, but thematically, like Joe was saying, well, can't you and Flanker take on the Archmage together because he's a badass and that'll be fun. And I was like, no, thematically, he has to be taken over by the Archmage. You have to have to, you have to kill him. Mm-hmm. Like that's vital to the narrative. And then on top of that, we had various people enjoying romancing Flanker. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm really proud of the way that we did the options for causing Flanker to be a love interest, which is a viable thing in the game. Doesn't matter what gender you pick or anything like that. But the way that we structured the start of that relationship so that people who don't want to have a relationship with Flanker will never see any of the choices mm-hmm. that lead to it. Because in order to start a relationship with Flanker, you just have to choose generally empathetic options more than three or four times. Right. He'll sort of talk to you and there's a choice which is, how are you feeling? And the other yeah. choice is, what's the quickest way to the tower? <laughs> and if you say, what's the quickest way to the tower, you'll never have a relationship with him. But if you say, how are you feeling about this? Right. And then there's another one and another one. And if you ask three empathetic questions in a row, then he'll very gently touch your arm. And that's the signal that this, right. is, this is going well. You know. <laughs> um, and that's okay. If you're in love with Flanker, then the power of love is a redemptive force which is allowed to stop you from having to kill him. You can save him a different way. And thematically, that all works. And bizarrely, I really care about that. I really couldn't possibly have ended Flanker's arc any other way. And to me, that was incredibly important because I guess he's the only other human being in the entire story so it was quite important to me that it was possible to get to the end with flanker and then it was possible to abuse flanker if you wear the crown of kings and take him as your slave or to take him home as a lover or whatever and or as a friend um and i suppose yeah when i said i wasn't interested in the endings i think i was interested in the endings that you had with flanker the ninja and of course plenty of people just killed him in book one and didn't that was it. <laughs> so never mind. Man, it's hard for me to imagine making these games because it's the whole concept of like you have this character and someone might have might have killed him in book one and you're still designing stuff for him. Yeah. You know, for three more games. But I kind of seems that's so intense. I, I love it. I really love it. I mean, we we found quite early in maybe it was in book two, we there's a point where you can pick up a guide who walks with you for a bit and then uh-huh. obviously betrays you because it's Gare. Um <laughs> But we found that it was actually really easy. No, it was in book one with the, the silly imp thing in book one. We found that it was actually really easy to put a, a character with you because you just wrote their lines of dialogue and wrapped it in a conditional. Right. And, you know, if the conditional's false, it doesn't show up. You just put it on its own paragraph. So you don't have to worry about any text generation stuff. It's just an extra thing. Yeah. And, and that was so powerful that you could pick up a character and they were really there. And then you could turn them off in an instant, right. logically. And... Yeah. So I didn't really bother about that stuff. You just, you write Flanker and then you wrap, you wrap any usage of him in a conditional and he vanishes for the players who've lost him. That's fine. You know, so long as the rest of the game is good, (laughs) it's okay. Um, And it makes things feel precious. Yeah. Hmm. No, I did like that, actually. That was nice. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've we've tied up sorcery. That's That's sorcery, yeah. That's a lot of work. It was. It was a really long piece of work. It was, I mean, it's the longest connected game I've ever made I'm really proud of it as well like you know it looking back at Sorcery 1 it's quite simple in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and um, it's too slavish to the book and the paragraphs are too long and there aren't enough choices and all that kind of stuff Um, but I do 
whenever people ask me what what I'm most proud of writing, it's always I know everybody liked Eighty Days, and I did write a lot of that, but I didn't write enough of it to take full credit for it by any stretch. Um, but I'm most proud of Sorcery just because I know I always wanted to write a fantasy trilogy. Sure. And I sort of have now. Yeah, sure. In a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and I got to do an ending, which was cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great series. I mean, I highly recommend it to people whenever they're... Well, thank you. I mean, it, it's really nice to talk that. about it in depth, actually, because, um, yeah, since 80 Days came out, like, <laughs> really, I didn't, the, know, I didn't know you had that experience. To me, yeah, they're, they're both just like these really cool right. Yeah, games. no, the um, the right. uh, yeah, eighty days completely clobbered sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all but, right. Uh, well, speaking of which, let's talk about eighty days. So, mm. how did that happen? So, uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about eighty days anymore. Well, all right, let's talk about eighty days. We we made this game called Frankenstein that I mentioned, right? And uh, after the end of it, we were chatting. I suppose Joe and I were chatting about other books that would adapt well. Right. And we had that floating around the back of the head. And I, I said, oh, you know, something adventurous would be better. Frankenstein's too serious. It's too dour. Too dour. You know, something, a Jules Verne or something like that. Something right. that's just fun. So that floated away into the back of one's head. And then we made Sorcery and we discovered that maps were brilliant. And we realised, of course, that you could make a game set on globe. Right. And we thought, oh, yeah, do you remember 80 Days? That was an idea we floated. Yeah, right. that would be good. Anyway, we made Sorcery too. And it was an idea that just wouldn't go away. We kept accidentally just talking about it. We'd sort of sit in a pub and and discuss again how it would be possible to make some simple resources. But they would be really well-characterised resources because, like, the amount of bags you were carrying could be a perfectly good significant resource, but it'd be nice and chunky and it wouldn't feel abstract. We didn't have to measure your stamina or your, like, you know, your, your, your luck score out of 20 or anything. Um we can make everything very in world. Money is easy. Time is easy. Right. Everybody understands what those things are. Um, and the affordance of it, just the affordances of it as a concept just kept coming back to us. Like the fact that you had a score that was obviously a score, like yeah. the number of days. Yes. But it wasn't an abstract score. It made perfect sense. The fact that it was naturally built the same way as the sorcery adventure. It was a series of episodes. But the fact that the episodes didn't connect to each other, which keeps down the, the branching possibilities, wasn't a weakness mm-hmm. at all. Um, and I think that was probably enough to convince us that it was worth giving it a go. And then once we started building it, we started to find there were even more affordances. Like uh, I mentioned with sorcery, there was a strategic element yes. to the map. And... Uh, that you might sort of see a village and say, well, I want to go to that village. And what we found really interesting with 80 Days was that because it's set on the globe, everyone already has an opinion about every location on the globe. Yeah, and yeah. you see Kiev, it says something to you. Right. And that you have a reason to go there, maybe. Um, and that was incredible, creating... When we started to realise we'd created a map which was full of places people wanted to go anyway, regardless yeah. of what we did with the game. Mm-hmm. And that was very exciting. And... Our sort of original intentions were to do something very... We were thinking very Apple-ish stuff, actually, at the time. So the original design for 80 Days was it was going to run in real time. It was going to take 80 days. Passepartout was going to communicate with you by notification. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say this was well before Lifeline came out. Right. Um, he was going to do it in short bursts. So he'd say, I'm getting aboard this train. And you'd say, okay, off you go. And were then, you always going to be him? Uh, yeah, you were always going to be Passepartout. Oh, no, well, hmm. yes, you were always going to be in first person and you were always going to be Passepartout. Yeah. Um, because 
Why was that obvious? It was obvious. I, I wanted to write something in first person because sorcery was in second person, and I don't like second person as a tense. And in the interactive fiction community, people used to say it had to be second person because otherwise it didn't make sense. And I thought that was a ridiculous <laughs> argument. So I wanted to prove that you could obviously do first person. It's behind a lot of your choices, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so it was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you can get a lot more character into first person than you can into second person. Well, you can get any character into first person than you, you can't into second person. So that was really important to me. Um, but Fog... I think it was somehow obvious from the beginning that Fog was not an interesting character. Mm -hmm. Even though when we started writing the game, I had not read Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I hadn't actually read it until well, well into the middle of the project wow. at all. <laughs> That's an interesting choice. No, I just, I, I knew what it was about and I'd seen this cartoon. <laughs> it's on the kid. title. Yeah, right. Exactly. I didn't need to know anything else. I got a vaguely knew the plot um, from somewhere. Yeah. Maybe I'd seen the film when I was young or something. Um, but like research has never been something I've been very interested in particularly so there we go uh, yeah so and then it was going to but we so it was going to be played this game played out of notifications with very short bursts and then we started to slowly realise that 80 days was an incredibly long period of time like an mm -hmm. incredibly long period of time and that no one would come back to it oh I think I two. missed this you actually wanted to yeah we were going to do it in an 80 day journey in real time wow and we thought about it for quite a while. And then we thought, okay, let's make it eight days and compress it by a factor of 10. So uh -huh. at least you get to play it through and people will actually see the end as opposed to forgetting about it. It's like, right. you know, a quarter of a year or whatever. Um, but the more that we thought about that, the more we realized that really was a stupid idea. Hmm. And I, I think, you know, I, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. And we thought, no, no, this is silly. Let's just, let's just do what we do anyway. Sorcery works fine. Let's just make just sorcery. Yeah. So the first design that we had was um, pretty similar to what we ended up with, but it was a bit more sorcery-ish in that you would, you would go to a city and then when you arrived in a city, that city would happen automatically. You'd do that city and then you'd choose where you'd go next and then you'd do the journey and you'd come to the city and it would happen automatically and that was the progress. That was the flow of the game. Now, That's the difference. Um... Right, exactly. Um, that was a terrible design and it didn't work at all. And the design that we changed to, um, Meg was already writing by, the, by uh -huh. this point. Um, she, we kind of, there's a whole story about how we found her and she was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, so originally, yeah, like Sorcery, you chose a destination, you arrived in the destination and then you explored that city. What we changed to was a design where you arrive in a city and there's an explore button, which you don't have to press. Okay. And if you do press it, then you explore the city and you unlock the routes out of the city. But you might already have the routes okay. out of the city, in which case you can you don't need to explore it. You can okay. just go. You can just carry on traveling. And the difference between making exploring the city something that happened automatically when you arrived in it and something that you had to press a button to do was absolutely astronomical and completely changed the experience of the game in a way that I'm still not quite sure I fully understand, but I saw it in action. Right. Um, I think it's something to do with the first time it felt like a chore to arrive somewhere because it would make you do this story content when you had just done the traveling and right. the traveling you was have the to interesting do it no matter bit. what and you just yeah can't. exactly so you you people would just bang through the options to try and get rid of it because they liked the traveling they liked the choosing where to go in the world they liked the race against time all of those things so the city was literally an obstacle in the way of that and um, instead making it a thing that you did in order to explore and unlock the route made it part of the traveling right. it meant that exploring a city was actually part of your journey not a kind of uh, a blocker on your journey 
And that, that one button press, you were saying earlier about not introducing extra button presses that are unnecessary, <laughs> but that button press made the game sure. playable, which was really cool. Um, though it did mean that we... No, I, I get that. I mean, that totally makes yeah. sense, right? Like, it's, it's player-led, you know, they're yeah, not... Yeah, exactly. They're not being sort of trapped into a pattern. Yeah. Um, we had promised Meg that we, she could guarantee that a city would always happen before any journey coming out of that city, which she was relying on repeatedly in yeah, storyline. Did you guarantee her that what happened? That uh, the exploration of a city would always happen before the journey leaving a city. So that if you started a plot inside that city, you could carry it on in the journeys that led out. Okay. And changing to an optional explore button broke that rule right so we had to rewrite quite a lot of content okay. to, to cope with that but that was also good because it meant we were introducing more variation and things um i don't know how i got onto that yeah so that was that was the design that we that was the design that we had we took sorcery but we made that one change to make locations optional right and then it worked yeah but it didn't work for that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a game that's like, it's super thematically strong. Like you can just, yeah. it's so easy to explain to people yeah. and it's a very appealing concept. Yeah. Um, I think that was what we kept finding was we'd tell it to like friends and relatives and they'd say, oh, I'll play that. I'd yeah. play that. And we were like, but do you want to play this sword and fantasy ogre game? You really don't, <laughs> do you? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that's, you know, real world environments can, I don't know, there, there's a lot of potential there because yeah, you don't turn off yeah. a good portion of your audience, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although I really enjoyed the kind of the bizarro world of, mm. of the game. I mm. mean, I thought that was done super well where it was just kind of like, you know, there was a lot of, lot of history mixed in with a lot of like, mm. you, know, uh, you know, what maybe they thought the world was going to become like, right? Mm. And, mm. you know, and then obviously just some stuff that you guys made up. Yeah, no, it, it was really fun. I mean, we started with the steampunk thing um, out of necessity in real life 1872 there is one way to get around the world in 80 days and famously it, you couldn't quite do it <laughs> like that's the whole point of the book right. um, you know we wanted a game where going through Africa was a sensible strategic yeah. choice um, I always kind of wondered about that because it was hard for me as like a strategy gamer to ever go to Africa because I'm like mm. I'm like going the wrong direction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I was curious like if you guys if you guys did something to make it make the I to make that some a viable path or not yeah like, yeah I mean it. we did we did how did that work uh, I well it's you go down to the bottom of Africa and you sail off to go to Antanarivi. Uh, there's an island whose name I can no longer pronounce, but I can still see the picture in my head. Okay. Um, you get captured by Captain Nemo. Uh, the oh, good thing wow. about Captain Nemo is he has a super fast Nautilus submarine. Um, so he can get you all the way to, I think it's Australia. Uh-huh. And then you're in Australia, which is a pretty good place to be. So sure. it's a perfectly viable route because we, yeah, we, we fixed that problem essentially. Mm-hmm. And in general, that was just the, the rule of the balancing of the whole game. There's, you know, if you do the 15 day journey into the middle of the Rubal Kali desert, which is obviously a terrible thing to do if you're trying to get around the world in 80 days, <laughs> there's a teleporter there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that you sure. can make that time up. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, again, there's a lot of this comes down to the concept of player trust. Absolutely, right? yeah, like, exactly. And it's a question, exactly. question of how many times did I play through the game. Like, I, if, I, if I was going to do another playthrough, I probably would, whether we talked about it or not, go through Africa. Because at that point, I was like, well, let's see what happens. I mean, yeah, I'm exactly, sure they've yeah. thought about this. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, they no. take care of me so far. So, I mean, that's why we needed to introduce, but we, to make that possible, we needed to introduce... The, the the steampunkery the the kind of the magic essentially so that when we needed to fix that problem we could fix that problem so we built that in right from the beginning and steampunk as the version of magic makes sense because it's what people associate with Jules Verne but I think what Meg did which was 
uh, quite jaw-dropping actually was that she found a way to do steampunk which didn't look like steampunk mm -hmm. um, by doing her her international steampunk so right. she used to say that the what does steampunk look like in a desert because you wouldn't use steam yes. in a desert because you wouldn't need water and like that's a brilliant line of thought <laughs> and I think she she has a couple of writers that she quoted I don't even think that quote is original but it doesn't really matter and yeah, and the, the world building that she did at the start of the project um, was terrific. And then when... It, yeah, it seems super well-researched, you know, yeah, which, which she, seems like an odd thing to say for a game where, like, a lot of the stuff's made up. But yeah, like, no, like, one of the things we really enjoyed was mixing real history, yeah. real history from about 10 years later, uh -huh. and completely fictional history, right. but not telling you which one we were giving you at any one time. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of what we were talking about, was that our understanding of the world and of history, we're so confident that we know what's true and what isn't. But actually, what I enjoy about 80 Days is that when we present a bizarre city to you or a strange story it's not always entirely obvious whether the content of that city is true or not. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite example, if you go to Chicago, there are houses on rollers rolling past with people having dinner in them, uh -huh. which is true. Okay. That was being done in 1872. Sure. Um, they obviously were being pulled by horse and cart. They, they were not by mechanicized right. steam engines, but the idea of moving houses around on rollers is something that they do in America, as far as I can tell, and they are still doing, and you can see people doing it on YouTube with massive, great big stone wow. houses. You can see this. They, they move churches wow. like on rollers. That's a, that's a ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> and from the British point of view, that's incredibly ridiculous because Britain doesn't have any space to move anything <laughs> in it. Um, yeah. And I love that kind of uncertainty that a lot of 80 Days is actually perfectly accurate. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it isn't. And a lot of it is taking something that was accurate and then spinning off it. And Meg did a great job of kind of the initial research and, and finding... The language for that and then when i came on to write the project so i hadn't intended to write on it at all but it grew and grew and grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger and we, we she just couldn't handle it she yeah. couldn't she could not know she she's very very good she probably couldn't have managed to handle it in any reasonable amount of time if there hadn't been sure. both of us writing so i wrote fan fiction for her universe <laughs> sure um, well she, she did a great job setting up that the world i mean it was i mean i i just love the concept of like a you know, at some point it's an arbitrary date, but you pick a date and they just take a slice of the whole world yeah. at that point, right? Because, you know, you learn, you when you when you learn history, usually it's a very, you know, it's a very high level. You know, you grab the 19th century, it's like, well, there's Napoleonic Wars and there's American Civil War and like, I don't know, it was 1848 and maybe you'll learn about the Franco-Prussian War and you'll probably learn about the Opium Wars and whatever. But like, there are about these big moments, like, but like, you know, mm. what's, what's going on in you know, Thailand in 1870, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, what's going on in India in 1870? What's going on in South Africa? What's going on in and Australia, I think right? something like, we were really, really interested in was what does a normal person look like? Mm -hmm. Like, what's a normal woman look like in 1872's Cairo? Mm -hmm. Like, just one, just one of them. Right. Like, and um, that's a really liberating thing to write when you don't, you're explicitly not writing a microcosm of the entire world. So when you meet an individual in Cairo and they're a pickpocket, that's not because we're saying everyone in Cairo is a pickpocket. Right. We're saying pickpockets exist. Right. And that's really nice because normally you always accidentally end up saying my individual represents the entirety of the population. And I think 80 Days, by its sheer scale, managed to say, actually, that's not what we're doing. Our individuals are individuals. Um, and make a game which was about which was about the diversity of individuals rather than about the diversity of groups. 
which most diversity ends up talking about because it's very hard to really zero down onto individual people. And I think that was really special about it, actually. Um, and in general, played to the strengths that we've been finding with interactive fiction, you know, the whole way, really, is that it's at its best when it's interacting with characters. Mm -hmm. The best bits of sorcery are when there's another human being for you to spar with. And the best bits of 80 Days are when you're meeting people. And when you're not meeting people, it's when you're arguing with Mr. Fogg. Um, and that kind of permanent... I think that was one of the other things that drew us to 80 Days, or kept drawing us back to 80 Days, was that it was a way of making an interactive story in which you were always with someone. Um, and we didn't have to worry about that too much logically. We didn't have to track it. Mm. But there was always someone to talk to, and there was always someone to spar off. And that core relationship right. could give us that human interest the whole way through. Which, you know, if I was a film writer, that's like, that's lesson one. <laughs> you know, as a game developer, oh, a, a buddy human. That's actually right. quite advanced. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a charmed project, really. Everyone we brought on to work on it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Everyone seemed to understand it straight away. There were remarkably few arguments. A lot of the design problems were very hard, but it was mostly the UX problems that were really hard. Mm -hmm. um, because Joe and I had a lot of information we wanted to get across to the player and we wanted to do it elegantly. Um, I remember Joe at one point saying working on it was was like literally biting off more than you could chew. You'd start the week with the problem, whatever this week's problem was, and you put it in your mouth and you'd try to get your tongue and your teeth around it. You couldn't you almost and then by the end of the week you might have just about managed to swallow it and go, Okay, I've managed to squash all this information. Right. And then next week you'd do it again. Yeah. And it really did feel like that the whole way through. And so, yeah, whenever, whenever anybody sort of says that it's elegantly designed or that it's streamlined, yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of work to it get It took there. a lot of work. Yeah, we had a lot of ideas and iterations, a lot of levels of um, detail that came and went and came and went as we tried to work out, you know, what is what is what matters and what doesn't and how, how can we make this feel like a strategy game without making it into a strategy sure. game? Um, All right. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about the suitcases. Sure, the suitcases. Um, and the inventory management. So mm. uh, we've talked about this before. My issue is is that I don't... I'm curious how it would feel if there wasn't a real-time element yeah. involved. Because that's the yeah. only time in the game there's a real-time element, right? I mean... Okay, this... so the first thing I want to say is that that's not true. There is always a real-time element, except so... when you're reading words. Well, right, okay. but it, no, it's I know. primarily no, a game no, no, about I, I get words. That. I get that what you're saying is, is functionally the same, but I think aesthetically it's not the same. Okay. Like, when you're reading the words, we don't have a real-time element for the obvious reason that you're in the middle of a story which is passing through time. We don't need a clock ticking to tell you that time is passing because right. the words are doing that right yeah, now. Yeah. So that is real-time. It's just fictional real-time. And then when the story finishes and you're not reading any words, we need to continue the momentum which the story has already been generating. And the only way to do that is with a ticking clock. Right. So we did try it without a ticking clock. We had that for a while because okay. it was a tough feature to implement, actually. Like throughout the entire game or just for yeah, the inventory yeah, stuff? Yeah, with, with no ticking clock at all. You arrived in every city at 8 in the morning. Uh -huh. That was how it worked. The clock just always said 8 o'clock. Yeah. Um, and I remember when Joe implemented it, and suddenly we had to write daytime content and nighttime content for all the cities and cope with whether you were exploring them in the day or the night. And we had to do audio soundscapes that changed for, you know, nighttime and daytime. And all of the stuff that came out of the fact that it could be two in the morning suddenly in our universe. But it was absolutely the right thing to do because it maintained that momentum. And the game is all about momentum. Like everything in the game is about momentum from the soundtrack to the name to the whatever you like. And I think the key thing 
to realizing and, and analyzing it is that when the story is progressing, time is moving. It's just not the clock that's moving. And yeah, okay, you can put the app down if you like, but you're not going to, I think, because there's a choice that says, I hurried along, dot, 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 and it's flashing at you. So of course you press it. So at that point, we can hand momentum to the player because they're reading this story, which is hopefully engaging. The minute they arrive at a city, if the, t- if the clock stopped, that would be the point where you put the app down. Yeah. So I and don't, don't mind the, I don't mind the clock running at all throughout mm. most of the game. Right. It's Except just the suitcase stuff. Now, yeah, I mean because like that part of the game is not it's so, not fun to like So specifically like, what you're objecting to is the fact that when you need to get on a train with four yes. suitcases and you have five, you have to repack your suitcases yes. in order to catch that train before the train leaves. Yeah. That's specifically the design moment that, that you're complaining about. Now, right. the, the first thing I'll say is you're definitely not the only person in the world who <laughs> complains about this. Um, and you've been very polite about it as well. Um, the second thing I would say is that this is a game where I've received emails that say, I am so angry with you. I bought a ticket, I bribed someone to, to get this ticket, yeah. and then I missed my train because I was too busy packing a suitcase. I put it to you that a game which allows someone to email to say, I missed my train because I was packing a suitcase is a work of genius because that's an incredible thing <laughs> to stimulate in a player <laughs> through the medium of a mobile phone. Not to mention, I got to reply to this person, and exactly what I replied to you when you brought this up over email <laughs> a couple of years ago, um, was that... I'm very sorry to hear you missed your train from repacking your suitcases. Perhaps in future you should pack your suitcases the night before. <laughs> Which is like the sort of advice my mum would give me. Right, right, right. And is a perfectly valid strategy in the game. And I love that that interaction exists. And I appreciate that it's frustrating. But but the, the experience of missing a train, or the flip side of it, right. of just catching your train in time... Now, okay. feels to me like such an important part of the experience that the only thing that I would apologize for is if the actual touch mechanics of moving objects in and outside of the suitcase wasn't responsive enough that you felt it was unfair, then that's unfortunate. Yeah, there's. I think there's a little bit of that. I think there is. I mean, in... actual drag and drop is quite hard to catch really well on a phone, right? Um, just because of the way that the way that the yeah. software works. We we tried our best, but so there's a subtle point which I'm trying to remember is which is the does the night before do you always know how many suitcases you're if in you need? go and look at the journey it will tell you how many suitcases okay. you need. You do po- have to realize that you have to do that. It's possible that I didn't know that. That is possible because, yeah. like generally speaking, my issue was actually I think my main issue was like right when it's time to get on the train that's what i'm being told right it, like it, now you get to get needed exactly pack so, your but, eight suitcases to two but like, what i think it was was that people for precisely that reason that people don't think about the train until it's time to get on the train and then uh-huh. they get on the train and they go how many suitcases is it and uh, what i'm putting to you is that you are a bad valet <laughs> if you don't go and look <laughs> at the train it's in easy, advance it's easy to forget that you're the valet that's right sure. okay and As like opposed to the 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 hero of the story yeah exactly <laughs> like um and i don't mean to be too smug about this because i didn't actually realize that it was possible to pack your suitcases the night before until I was answering this email to you two years ago uh-huh. um, because I hadn't thought of it as a strategy I right. knew you could see the number of suitcases I, I knew that people missed the train but I never quite put those two things together and thought ah, if you pack in the evening you'll have ample time to do it right. but I really do love that that's an optimal strategy for the game right. um, in more general terms like 80 days is a game about things going wrong right just as sorcery is actually sure um and i think that with the 
the luggage mechanic. If it repeatedly happens, then of course it's going to get really, really, really annoying. And that's very, very difficult to deal with. But I think if it happens once or twice on a journey, I think it's so thematically relevant. And it's such a beautiful execution of a narrative moment through a primarily, uh, sorry, a purely abstract interface. Right. How could anyone with a soul cut that out? <laughs> Come on. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this and then maybe we we can move on. But having, having <laughs> talked to you for a couple hours now about like your design philosophy, I'm now not at all surprised <laughs> that this is the way the game, 80 days works. It's, uh, well, I, I, I really like that. Sense. I really feel I, I'm, I'm happy that I managed to communicate how I feel. I, I should, <laughs> I should say that like one of the, one of the nicest things about Inkle for me is that I get to work with Joe and Joe is, he's a very clever guy. He's a very good designer. He has a very different set of sensibilities than me. Right. Um, we do agree on things and we argue about a lot of things too. And he tends to get very frustrated with my interest in mechanics that are unfair, difficult and opaque. Right. Um, so he pushes back against a lot sure. of this stuff, but even Joe likes the running clock and the suitcase. Okay. <laughs> well, so I actually really like the concept of a running clock in general. I know a couple of the games have done like a clock that's running, even when it's not really that necessary. Like, even if it's like, it's running in real time, but the game is played out over days, and you're kind of like it's just kind of like this weird thing in the background that's just kind of ambient that makes yeah. it feels like the game is not pa- it's not, not like permanently paused, yeah. Yeah. right? Like it's a nice it's a nice thing. You yeah, know? I'm, I'm, I think in general um, something else that we've been I, I keep using the word momentum, but I, the the idea that a story should always be moving forwards over time, right? Because game narratives are generally very bad at change over time because it's hard to implement. Um, adventure games everything stands completely frozen and that's something that we've always wanted to achieve is yeah constant movement through time constant momentum so i I think it fits with that yeah cool cool all right um i mean i guess we could maybe talk a little bit about the fact that like presumably ADDs did i don't know how well it did but presumably did super well yeah it did pretty well um i i haven't looked at sales numbers for a long time i mean I, i think i mean more talking about like player response oh right like, good you know, yes just, um just like how sorry. you have to give me the exact how much money is in your bank account <laughs> yeah, sir exactly. um, um yeah no i mean people loved it which was wonderful actually and you know people the people who love it glow about it and they have related kind of their their, their sort of intimate story of 80 mm-hmm. days and I think Mega said this as well. When people tell stories about 80 days, they always say I. Mm-hmm. Um, they always say, I went here and I did this and I met this person and I fell in love with this person and I chased this person and then it went wrong for me. And it, like, it's part of them. And that's, I mean, that's incredible. Like, it's incredible. And I think as a as a studio, as, as creatives, Joe and I, and I suspect Meg as well, she's a freelancer, so she, she does her own thing, but after it came out and we saw the response to it, we all reeled a bit because we didn't really understand exactly what it was in it that had caused people to to be as passionate about it as, as they were. Right. And we've spent a lot of time since then dissecting it and trying to understand what are the core parts of it. You know, we haven't talked at all about the fact that it's replayable, right? Sure. For example, like, yeah. is that a core component of of why people loved it? Because they could always just sink into it and have another go. I, yeah. I, I genuinely don't know. And I think it's different for different people. Um, and representation was a huge part of that. You know, we get lovely emails from sure. like the seat guy who wrote and said, there are no seat guys in mm-hmm. games at yeah. all. And your game has two. Yeah. And like, that's lovely. Um, but that's certainly not the whole deal. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know, but it was, a, it was an incredible 
emotional roller coaster and then it burned us out completely for a while we went for a while of feeling invincible and a while of feeling like nothing we could ever do ever again would be any good um and it really oh, you mean you're it went through a period where you were, you were afraid to follow it up yeah right okay. exactly well we we didn't really know why it was why it was liked as much as it was yeah. and um i'm i'm a bit of a workaholic so i fell back immediately on writing sorcery 3 because at least i knew what, what to do how to sure. do that that's that's sure. where we were in the time um, but i think that's one of the reasons why sorcery 4 was quite hard to yeah. write was because yeah, it just there was yeah, there was this thing, and then and we didn't know how to follow it up. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why we're not doing a text-based game now. Right. So we're working on Heaven's Vault now, and it's much more of an adventure game. And it's partly because we have more budget to spend than we've ever sure. had before. But it's partly just that fear of making, you know, not eighty-one days, but seventy-nine days. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a really strong fear, and yeah. it's such a good concept um, that that any other any other concept we've had in the interactive fiction space just feels like a weaker version, which is silly, right? The world can afford more than one Inkle-based interactive narrative. You know, I, yeah. I always talk well, about... Well, I mean, and the thing is, I mean, frankly, there's there's a lot of places you could go with it, right? I right. love, like, yeah, a yeah. Marco Polo-esque game right. with Marco the Polo. same concept, Exactly, yeah, right? like, exactly. And it's a totally, um, totally different period of history, so it's like... But I think one thing that's worth remembering when trying to understand that... Uh, somebody asked me recently why we, why we didn't immediately follow it up with a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that writing, writing 80 Days, making 80 Days, was incredibly intense. It was a short development. It was only about nine months. Um... But long developments tend not to be fully intense developments. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. They, they can be quite a lot of just getting through it. Uh-huh. Whereas 80 Days was nine months of very lot of thinking work. Like uh-huh. it, it never stopped being thinking work. All of the writing was thinking work. There was very little data entry. Well, there was a lot of data entry, but right. that it wasn't just like building iterations and iterations um, in the way that some, some 3D work can be. Right. And I think the idea of embarking on an 80 days clone and doing all of that work with the worry that you aren't going to capture the same lightning in a bottle again is pretty off-putting. Um, so it's kind of easier to find something very, very different to do right, right. and approach that. Yeah. I don't know though. I mean, and I, we also wonder, I, like, I genuinely wonder whether people liked 80 days because they didn't expect interactive fiction to possibly be compelling people have this idea that reading in games is always appalling and they couldn't possibly ever do it because that is where people start from all of our reviews started like okay we know you don't like reading (laughs) in game but really honestly gov try this one it's okay and eventually once we'd won i don't know time magazine game of the year or something eventually we got our first review that just said it's a good game (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) we didn't start with this apology um but this feeling that maybe if we released another one, people would say, oh, well, I'm not surprised anymore. And therefore I'm not as interested. Right. Like whether it was the fact that, because people are so driven by technology and, and, and features that if you make something which works the same way, maybe it, it can't be as compelling. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I would love to write something else again, obviously, because I'm a writer and I want to right. do writing and goodness sake, writing is so much easier than what I'm doing right now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know when we'll get back to it or how exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to talk about Heaven's Vault then? Some? Yeah, a little bit. Um, why not? That's where we are at the moment. So Heaven's Vault's been going for about three years now at, at time of recording um, and should be finished by the end of the year, I think. And we finally know what it is and how it works and how it fits together and things like the world and the story. And for a long time, we didn't. It's... um. 
it's sort of an attempt at an interactive graphic novel. It's sort of an attempt at an adventure game which has that narrative momentum that I've talked about before. Because mm. most adventure games totally fail to have narrative momentum. Because you get stuck. You get stuck immediately. And if you don't get stuck, you see something which looks like something that you might have got stuck on. So yeah. like, even if you find a door that needs a key and there's a room you haven't looked in yet and you think, I bet the key's in that room and you go to the room and the key is there, you don't exactly feel a sense of of achievement or a sense of narrative flow you go i knew that was going to happen i'm glad it did because if the key wasn't there i would have been stuck yeah right. so that the fear of being stuck is mm. just as bad as the experience of being stuck in terms of the players sense and it's a shame because when i think about adventure games i think about how how they're supposed to feel how they're supposed to feel is great and how they actually feel isn't and i could put up with that a lot more than i was 16 i think playing them yep. and when i go back to them now i find them incredibly difficult to make any progress with even the really good ones and the really good ones are really good like watch your eye stuff is really good and it has a lot of flow to it and he's really good at maintaining momentum in his games uh dave Gilbert. but mm-hmm. but the minute they drop it's gone and everything's gone and yeah. and that yeah, it's a real shame so i think we were quite interested in trying to find a way to do an adventure game that maintained momentum as rigorously and as furiously as 80 days maintains its momentum despite the fact that the player can move around and stuff like that. And that has been really difficult. And the other thing, the other side of that is we wanted to not throw away the stuff that we like about the interactive work that we've done so far. So um, scripts that are totally responsive and characters that don't repeat themselves and dialogue that once you've, when you're when you have three questions you can ask a character you don't ever get to ask all three of them mm-hmm. that's you know you will have noticed that as being a fundamental sure. rule in sorcery like yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're going to everything comes with an opportunity cost because yeah. otherwise you're just farming through and that's um, very different from like the bioware style right exactly like, okay yeah. i just have to fill out this whole tree of dialogue and yeah right, and yeah, so yeah. why would i bother asking anything in any particular order yeah. i might as well go alphabetically yeah exactly um, and I think preventing people from farming options, like partly from feeling that they ought to farm options and partly from being able to farm options is really important. Um, and these are all really hard problems to solve. And we wanted to do it using the same engine, the same ink engine that we've used to write all of our content. And the idea is that we we write it as a script and then the script gets performed by the graphical layer. So mm. characters move around and props are in the world and Clicking a prop causes a choice to be made and the choice tells the characters what to say and the characters say it. And so we have this this idea for a way to build our engine and our responsive text into the game. And that is now working. (laughs) It's taken a while to work out how to make it work. Because what we've fundamentally ended up with um, is a structure where the game is not a branching tree at all, even though we're using a fundamentally branching tree tool to write it. The game is a very large bucket of bits of dialogue every bit of dialogue has a set of preconditions on it that tells it when it's logically sensible to appear right you know i do you know this thing do you not know this thing are you can you see this thing did you recently touch this do you whatever is the person you want to talk to actually here all of that stuff gets chucked into the system and then what comes out is anything which is appropriate right now so it's much more like a um i think it's more like an ai system actually or, well, a precondition-based AI system anyway. Um, and it works. And we've got to a point where we can author this stuff quickly because we've got the right authoring pattern. And again, it's a pattern just like in Sorcery 3 with a pattern to solve the open world. It's mostly not actually clever code. It's really just some structures, some copying, pasting, right. some shortcuts, 
um, ink is quite good for for being able to wrap stuff up and then forget about how it worked, which I guess all code is. Right. Um, so, yeah. So that's taken a long time to get to get our heads around. And what we've ended up with is a game we've been showing it to press this week at, at, at GDC, and we've got this one level. Um, we've written most of the game. We've got one level that looks nice, and about 16, 17 people have played it, and every single person has played it differently, and every single person has gotten from the beginning to some kind of end, though some of the ends were weaker than others, and I do need to look at that, um, but by following the direction they thought they wanted to follow, and no one wandered around and said, I don't know what to do now, and everyone uh, found something to do, but what they found to do was not necessarily the same thing, and they never ran out of dialogue. The two main characters continued to talk to each other about contextually relevant things the whole time, though what they said was often very different. Mm-hmm. But all of that divergence happened in the playthroughs but within exactly the same geographical space right so there's no branching via redundancy of of location and all of our previous games have done branching by redundancy of location right if you go to paris then you're not in warsaw and Mm -hmm. that's definitely a branch Uh, this is one location that you're moving through but you're moving through it in a manner of different context depending on what you happen to be looking at or what you've picked up or what you know or what you're talking about Um, so it's we, keeping track of state differently. Yeah, it's, and it's keeping track of a lot of state as well. There's something like there's something like 1,500 knowledge flags. Okay. So it's a bit like Mobilian. Yeah, flags, it's, it's reminds me of something. Yeah, the structure <laughs> is a lot better now. Okay. Um, the uh, the way we store knowledge is in chains, and so the idea is if any given chain of knowledge can be as long or short as it likes, but if I if I want to know if I learn state E in the chain, then it's assumed that I know A to D. Right. So whenever the logic says, do you know C, what it's really saying is, do you know C or D or E or F or G or H? Which means you can very efficiently just look at it like a graphic equalizer on a, a stereo and say, right, where's your knowledge state right now? And it's uh-huh. this sort of waveform of all the various chains. And then if you want to learn a fact, you just straight up to it. Right. And almost all of the logic in the game says, are you in a position where you do know this and you don't know that? Right. In which case, let's let's say something in that space, that's that knowledge space between those two facts, whatever they happen to be. Um, And that is very efficient and it's a good way of thinking. It matches the way that I'm thinking when I'm writing it because I don't actually care what you do know. I just want to know that you definitely know this much and you definitely don't know that much and then you're in the right space. Um, And that does seem to be working. And we have this very uh, player-led, contextual, relatively high momentum level of what's essentially quite a chill adventure game Mm-hmm. Um, what's the theme it's I haven't said have I uh, it's an archaeology game okay so it's an archaeological narrative game but we, we thought about that for a while and then we decided that archaeology archaeology is cool but it's also massively politically complicated because mm-hmm. it's sort of just stealing stuff from other people's countries <laughs> right um, and all the things that make it cool are the kind of exploration and the discovery and the the wonder and the ghosts from the past and all the who pays for this and why is really hard not to make extremely problematic. Right. Um, so we ended up doing science fiction archaeology because that lets us enjoy the wonder and the discovery and move the political ramifications of it into an entirely fictional universe. Right. So it is politically relevant archaeology, but it's politically relevant to the twin planets at the heart of the nebula that you're exploring. <laughs> right. And so nobody needs to feel like they're being hurt by anybody. And that's, I think, I think perfectly valid. There's nothing wrong with a good game that explores the the difficult, problematic nature of archaeology, but there's also nothing wrong with a game that's just fun and doesn't hurt anybody. So that, that's that's what we're doing. Okay. Um, 
But that's been really interesting to design for as well, because archaeology is fundamentally quite dull. Mm. Most of archaeology is digging very slowly. Um, we had to think for a while to find mechanics that we really liked. And exploration is good. Deduction is good. Archaeologists are detectives. The joke you always make is they're detectives who are just really late. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not quite like detectives because a detective at the end of a detective story pronounces the truth and the murderer stands up and says, it's a fair cop, you got me. Right. But what's lovely about archaeologists is they can never be sure if they're right about anything. Sure. It's just the yeah. best theory they've got. And that ambiguity gives us a really interesting thing to to basically annoy the player with in the way that I've done on all my other games. <laughs> that gives us that nugget of friction, which makes it slightly more interesting. There isn't a right answer. There's just lots of plausible answers. Mm-hmm. And that's great for non-linearity. And it's great for making a game that the player can leave their own mark on. All right. So is there like a finite amount of stuff to discover and then like kind of player will end up with their own interpretation of it? Or like Yeah, I guess so. There's a finite amount of evidence that you can look at and things that you can see. And then you can make a chain of deduction based on how you choose to interpret it or or even just what order you encounter things in and whether you manage to dissuade her of stuff that's wrong. And of course, then the narrative design attempts to gently funnel you onto something that's roughly right. So we don't you dissuade her. Uh, so she might say to her partner, well, this place looks like a graveyard, but it might be a temple. Okay. And then there might be a choice that the player can say where she says, I think it's a temple. Okay. Um, you know, the player doesn't get to choose everything that she thinks. She, she has a lot more... Um, internal narrative than most of our characters have ever had Mm -hmm. she'll come out and just say stuff Um, but that's quite fun too and it works quite well in the graphical representation that you can see this person and then they say things and that doesn't feel as weird as if you put it in text people say well wait I'm not doing that so this this game isn't responding to me and that's quite interesting Um, and then finally we settled on this mechanic of an ancient hieroglyphic language Uh which you can decipher so across the game you're finding inscriptions the whole time written in this symbolic language where (coughs) every character has a conceptual meaning and they get compounded into words formed from those meanings and that's really cool and everyone who plays the game kind of really hooks onto that as an idea Um, because it is a full language though it's not a sensible language linguists tend to roll their eyes at it which is fair enough that's their prerogative um but it does feel like a kind of code breaking game without being about alphabets and letter swaps and that sort of thing there's a lot of different ways to approach it as a puzzle. So you might look at where the inscription is, or you might look at what the symbols look like, or you might look at a word you saw recently, which you thought maybe translated as this, and here's something similar, so it must be connected. But then your original guess might have been wrong because we tend not to confirm answers at all, or we confirm the odd word every now and then once you've used it a few times. Right. So we don't tell you if you're right. So that's not very puzzly. And then whatever you say as your idea for what a translation is, we feed back into the narrative and have her talk about, right. despite the fact there's lots of permutations. So it's this really interesting sort of, you're, sort, you're part interpreting and you're part doing a puzzle. Um, and there's been so much design that's had to go in to get that to work and to get things like the progression curve to work because uh, you're walking around this open environment. You can find any inscriptions in any order you like, but we have to make sure that the inscriptions you get are on a curve which you can approach. Right. If it's too easy, there's no point. If it's too hard, there's no point. So the game is triangulating. What sort of things might someone have written on this door? What kind of puzzles can you solve right now? And trying to find the best inscription that matches both of those criteria and then providing that to you right. to solve. Um, and that's all working quite well, I think. Um, so that's been really fun. What's um, 
so since you're you know you still have have work to do on it, what's your biggest fear? Like that's not gonna <sighs> that's not gonna work for the game. So right now the yeah, that's a really good question. I think there are two things that I worry about, and the first one is that the narrative will peter out. I'm a bit scared of the ending because it's hard to know. It's hard. I mean, I have an idea for what the ending is and I've sort of written one and it's okay. But after people have been playing a long 12 hour adventure game, do they necessarily need an ending where everything blows up? Do they need to leave an army to a revolution? Do they need some great massive catharsis? Because I don't know how we could do that artistically, given that we have to draw everything that yeah. that happens to the player. And what we have is quite a quiet contemplative ending and we haven't got it in game yet because we haven't built the art for it. So I don't really know how it feels. And I worry that, that as a piece of writing, it will run out of steam before the end. And it's a much longer game than any other game we've made, ignoring sorcery. And it's also a lot less glib. Mm-hmm. It doesn't rely on the same tricks that our previous games have relied on of being faintly throwaway and out to get you. It's much more um, constructive and ambient as a narrative. It's trying to be a bit more human um, and, uh, yeah, plausible, I guess, despite being a science fiction game. Yeah. But that's okay. Those are normal things for a writer to worry about. Yeah. And I think as I approach the ending, it will it will gather detail, which will make it emotionally resonant. That's how this normally works. And yeah, then yeah. there'll be one idea and it'll all be fine. Um, we just have to get there. And then the other thing is just the sheer business of polishing. Like mm-hmm. I've never I've never made a game that's required. Is that true? I've never made a game which requires as much 3D manipulation as i'm doing sure. now we're a small team and we we don't have any scope really to grow much more the art department are very professional and they've, they've done this a million times but i haven't done this a million times so rigging cameras and zones and yeah, yeah, yeah. stopping characters falling through holes in the floor there's a lot, of, a lot of new things that can go wrong yeah and testing every single corner of every single level in every single context but previously we've always relied on the fact that the way the content is scripted is very internally robust. We don't have to test every outcome of sorcery to know that it will work because you can look at the script mm-hmm. and say, well, what's it, it's got nowhere else it can go. It's just yeah. a state machine. It's dropping through this thing. It hits the end point. It's done. Yeah. Whereas the 3D game, you can read the script, but if your prop is two centimeters inside the collision volume, it will never be surfaced. The player can't click it and the game dies. Yeah, yeah. The game completely dies. And there's no way to catch that apart from to play it. So, this week we've been playing this demo level to journalists. It's been very heavily tested back at the studio and I have six pages of minor bugs. And they are minor bugs, but they're all bugs and this is one level. And I'm terrified of actually finishing this thing and being able to get it to a standard where where for most players they'll have a wonderful time with it. Right, right. And I don't know any way to make that better, really, apart from just to keep slogging away it's, at it. It's, so, yeah, it's just a lot of work. There's yeah, no, there no doesn't seem to be there. a, a yeah. shortcut. Um, I suppose that will be fine. I don't know. By the end of it, I might hate it completely. Yeah, um, that's, that's the challenge. It's kind of like that thing of like how much you got to make sure you have enough motivation to finish the thing. Yeah, off, right, right yeah. exactly. And like it's it's when it's not scary and a huge amount of work, it's such a pleasure um, to be working with the the team of people that we have. We're like we're a studio of eight now. And everybody's wonderful. And I know everybody says that, but they are wonderful. And everybody is really either our team is a mixture of juniors who are very happy to be 
in important roles doing an interesting project that's getting visibility and seeing their work be surfaced, you mm-hmm. know, in an environment where they're listened to and they're valued and they're being and they're learning. And seniors who are really happy to be in an environment where everybody's nice to them and nobody punches <laughs> them and nobody sure. shouts at them and the ideas aren't stupid. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, everyone has experience of working in studios that are less than less than healthy. Yeah. So we're all very happy to be where we are. And then in the same time, I, you know, nobody knows where the market will be in yeah, sure. two weeks' time, let alone yeah. know, probably a year's time, something like that. Well, that's the ambient fear that's just kind of always... Yeah, that's around, never so. going to go away, you exactly. And, yeah. 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 Um, you know, when we started this game, narrative games were really popular. Yeah. They were really at their peak. And I look around the games industry today and I see a lot of narrative games that are sort of getting quite a distinct meh reaction mm-hmm. whether they deserve it or not yeah irrespective of whether they deserve it or not and a lot of games which have nothing to do with narrative sailing very very high with the player base and these things tend to swing backwards and forwards yeah. so i'm kind of hoping that the the amount of time that it takes us to finish this game will be you know roughly equal to the amount of time <laughs> it'll take the audience to decide that maybe narrative games were good after all but yeah um, but there's no way to control that. And I, it, one of the major influences on our design for Heaven's Vault is the the Last Express, the Jordan Venture sure. adventure game that I mentioned earlier, which was a massive commercial flop. Mm. And like, it's the best game ever made. <laughs> it is the best game ever made. It's the best written game ever made. I'm not it's, sure I would say it's the best game ever made. It's a extremely <laughs> distinctive game. It, and it's deeply, deeply <laughs> flawed, but... Um, yeah, I mean, if if I could if I could better one game, yeah, it would be that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, but, it's it's a game worth playing and worth knowing about. Yeah, this, that's right. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, All right. Well, um, one thing I also like to ask usually when you get to the end of sure. you know, of uh, you know up to the present day, like you know looking looking back at everything you've done, you know why is game why have games become your life's work? You know, like why do you do this? So the funny thing is I seem to have always been doing them. So I don't know that I ever really chose anything. <laughs> I mean, I think I was designing board games with my brother when I was seven, you know. Um, mm. But I think it's the sense that... It's the sense that there's something there that people haven't captured yet. And I think the reason that I've fallen off writing novels is that every time I try, I realise that actually the novels that are out there that are in the past when I was younger and, mm. and, and more cocky, uh, I would have said, oh, these are not very good, actually contain a level of skill and mastery that I'm not, I'm not at, mm-hmm. even though they're not very good, that actually to make a good novel is astonishingly difficult mm-hmm. and a highly, highly technical and creative and emotional skill. Whereas games have so much potential to move us and inform us and inspire us that hasn't even begun to be circumscribed yet. Mm-hmm. That there feels like something truly magical is actually just within one's reach the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it would be churlish not to reach for it. Sure. That sounds a bit like I'm saying that's because games are easier than novels. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe that is what I'm saying. Right. Um, that it feels much more likely that that the effort that one puts in is going to be rewarded, that one's going to find something truly special. And 
But at the same time, that has been my experience. Yeah. You know, writing stories has been fun, but I've never really switched a light on in anyone's eyes with well, the story that I've written, I think. I and mean, it makes sense. You're competing with centuries of history. Yeah, you write right. a novel. Whereas exactly. with you know, video exactly. games, like, we're still figuring this stuff out. So Yeah. But it's possible to really do something wonderful in games. And, and I guess that makes it worth it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm quite tired at the moment. <laughs> like, I feel like I've been working for a long time. Sure. And, um, and I don't know what happens after, after this game and after the next game. And you don't see anyone over 45 in the industry really <laughs> at all. So where do they all go? But um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and nobody will make the games that I want to play. Nobody keep, keep people keep not making the games I want to play. So I keep feeling mm. like I have to make them because well, that, no one will make them for me. That's probably the best reason there is to design <laughs> games. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time. I Thank think, you very much. I it's think this went very well. Cheers. Yeah.